From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Why aren't all healthcare facilities following state regulations when it comes to workers getting the flu vaccine? As a healthcare worker, you have chosen to be in this environment. We have to make it the safest it can be. From assisted living facilities to hospitals, the rules and the exceptions about getting a vaccine. Then, the Bureau of Land Management's new headquarters officially opens in Grand Junction. We asked the head of the BLM what's next amid protests and skeptics. Then, exploring the newest discovery in outer space, a puffy planet. And how growth is reshaping Colorado Springs. It's growing north toward Denver. And one of the reasons is houses are about $100,000 cheaper in Colorado Springs than Denver on average. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. When you go to the doctor, you may notice some healthcare workers wearing masks. Colorado requires that most workers, 90% at places like hospitals, dialysis centers, and assisted living facilities, get flu vaccines. That means about 10% don't have to. But they have to wear masks during flu season. CPR's Andrea Dukakis found some facilities aren't following state rules as closely as others, and that could leave some patients more susceptible to getting sick. Andrea, welcome to the show. Thanks. Glad to be here. You got interested in state rules around healthcare workers and flu shots after an experience you had at the doctor? Right. I went to Kaiser Permanente in Arapahoe County for a test a while back, and I noticed the healthcare worker who greeted me was wearing one of those surgical masks. Another worker there was also wearing a mask, and it struck me as kind of odd, so I asked her why. Her answer was something like, we don't think flu shots are good for you, so a bunch of us don't get them. And she explained that's why they were wearing these masks. So it was those masks that piqued my interest in Colorado's rules around this. Now, before we get into those rules, just briefly, what's this year's flu season like? I've heard it's pretty bad across the country. Yep. So flu season usually starts in October, November. It peaks in February and tapers in the spring. And nationally, this season's on track to be pretty bad. But that's not exactly the case in Colorado. The amount of influenza that we're seeing this year is pretty typical. What is unusual about this flu season is the type of influenza. So normally we would be seeing influenza A viruses, but instead we're seeing more influenza B. That's state epidemiologist Rachel Hurley. She says influenza B usually comes later in the season and it tends to affect kids more. Okay, so flu shots for healthcare workers. Like you said, some workers don't want vaccinations, like the folks that you talked to at Kaiser. They think that they could actually cause harm and make you get the flu. People can't get the flu from the shot, and only a small percentage have severe allergic reactions to it. The state does leave wiggle room, about 10 percent, as we said, for those folks with health issues and for people with religious or personal objections, like I heard from Kaiser. The main point from doctors is that getting vaccinated helps prevent the flu, which kills thousands of people every year. Studies show most kids who've died from the flu didn't get the vaccine. So doctors say it makes sense that healthcare workers who often deal with very sick people get vaccinated. And you're also keeping workers healthy so they can keep treating patients. Of course, the vaccine's effectiveness varies year to year, but doctors say it's better than nothing. And are the folks who are wearing their masks like they're supposed to Are they really that effective? 
That's one of the things I was wondering about. So I asked around. It seems to be enforced at hospitals and larger facilities like Kaiser. But at smaller facilities, it's hard to track. In terms of whether the masks work, doctors told me if they're worn correctly, they help prevent the spread of the flu virus. And that's because it's mostly transmitted through these large droplets that can't make it through a mask. So besides your experience at Kaiser, did you talk with other healthcare workers who opt out of getting flu vaccine for personal reasons? It was tough to find someone willing to talk about this. I did speak with Dr. Michelle Barron, who's an infectious disease specialist at the University of Colorado School of Medicine. She says she spent time asking some of these healthcare workers why they object to the vaccine. I spoke to a lot of these individuals just trying to understand it. And some of it was principle, like, you know, I'm an intact person and I should be able to make decisions regarding my own body and what goes into my own body. And, you know, if I choose to, that's fine. But the fact that you're forcing me to do this is really not fair and kind of goes against my principles of civil liberties. Okay, so that's some perspective. I also think about the controversy surrounding parents who don't want to get their kids vaccinated because they worry about harmful harmful health effects. So they opt out in schools. You dug into Colorado's rules for healthcare workers and found out a bit more about the history of these rules, right? Yeah, if you go back 10 or 15 years, it was common for healthcare facilities, hospitals, and assisted living facilities to have no requirements around workers getting flu shots. And just encouraging workers to get vaccinated wasn't that effective when it was voluntary. Then around 2009, the H1N1 flu, also known as the swine flu, hit really hard, and folks got scared. Uh, Colorado was actually one of the early states to push for tougher rules and then adopt them, says Matt Winia. And they found it to be extremely successful. When you just tell people, look, you got to do this, um, then people do it. Winnie has written articles about flu shot requirements for healthcare workers. He's also the director of the Center for Bioethics and Humanities at CU's Anschutz Medical Campus. Colorado's rules date back to 2012, and again, they required healthcare facilities to show that 90% of their healthcare workers had been vaccinated. Winnie says when the new rules went into effect in Colorado and other states, some people weren't happy, most were fine with it. And obviously, there's still some people out there who don't want to get vaccinated, even though they work in the industry. So how well are facilities following these rules now? I looked over the most recent reporting available from the state. The numbers are from 2017, and there's a lot of variation. In particular, the numbers are really concerning when it comes to healthcare workers who tend to older Coloradans. And by that, I mean home healthcare agencies and assisted living facilities. What I saw is that many of those kinds of places never even reported on their workers' vaccination numbers. And a lot that did report were nowhere near the 90 percent requirement. Some were at 50 percent or even lower. I called a few of those places and they claimed the numbers were a bit higher, but that's still well below the expectations. What about workers in areas other than assisted living and home health care? A lot of places are extremely compliant. Hospitals, for example, at the University of Colorado Hospital 
almost all the workers have gotten flu shots. The hospital does allow for medical and religious exemptions. But for those who just don't believe in getting the flu vaccine and don't, they're put on probation and eventually they're dismissed. Dr. Michelle Barron, again, who's at CU, says she understands why people don't want to be forced to get them. But she says these particular health care workers have an added responsibility. As a health care worker, you have chosen to be in this environment and we have to make it the safest it can be. The people that come in have choices in terms of what they do before they get here. But once they're here, they don't have enough. They're not here because they want to be. Do you have any idea why certain places like those that provide assisted living aren't reporting their numbers and why some have such low numbers? It, it's hard to say, but it may have something to do with Colorado's booming economy. There's a shortage of workers, particularly in healthcare, And it may just be that it's too hard to fill some of these jobs and at the same time ensure those hires have been vaccinated. I mean, that doesn't excuse these places or explain why they're getting away with not reporting. I asked Matt Winia, again, who leads the Center for Bioethics and Humanities at CU, to look over the numbers, too. That suggests that, you know, there probably is some need for increased enforcement of the requirement to find out what's happening in nursing homes. And I think the, you know, what you're noticing is that if people don't report and if those who do report report pretty low compliance, then I think, you know, it may be time for policymakers to do some investigation and find out What is it that's the barrier? Why is it that these um, nursing homes are not reporting? And why is it that even those that do report tend to report very low numbers of vaccination? The state health department is responsible for keeping track of all this. What do folks there have to say? I contacted some people at the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment, and they told me that starting today, the Code of Colorado Regulations for Health Facilities is being revised. They said part of that is an effort to clear up some complicated language in the regulations to make clear that all licensed facilities have to follow the rules. He says the department already does inspections at facilities, and if places don't comply with regulation, uh, a, quote, corrective process is implemented and directed by the Health Facilities Division. My sense is we'll have to watch and see as newer numbers come out, if more facilities report to the state, and if more workers are getting vaccinated. Thanks, Andrea. You're welcome. CPR's Andrea Dukakis, who's been reviewing state regulations when it comes to healthcare workers and getting the flu vaccine. A new law in Colorado allows students 12 years old and older to get mental health counseling without parental approval. But the state's largest school district still requires parental permission from all students. As part of our series Teens Under Stress, CPR education reporter Jenny Brundine looked into the reasons. It wasn't just her own son who struggled with suicidal thoughts at age six. Representative Daphna Michelson-Janae was hearing alarming stories and statistics. We were hearing here in Colorado of 10-year-olds dying by suicide, of nine-year-olds dying by suicide. She saw that middle schoolers, kids 12 to 14 years old, an age filled with inner turmoil, needed to have a safe person to talk to. If they couldn't talk to their parents, they had no one. Giving our youth 
that right to consent to care is putting power in their hands to get the help that they need. At that time, only students 15 or over could get mental health therapy without parental consent. Suicide is the leading cause of death for young people in Colorado. They say they often lack the mental health resources they need. One in four middle schoolers say they don't have or don't know if they have a trusted adult in their lives. So Michelson Janae decided to sponsor a bill to lower the age of consent to 12. Listen to the youth testimony. I have attempted suicide myself. The first time I was 12 years old because I couldn't get help. My parents would not allow me to go to therapy. They said I didn't need it. At hearings for the bill, the testimony from teenagers was harrowing. I was crying because one of my friends was right in front of me, ready to die because she felt she had no one to turn to. I missed a few months of school because of depression, and I tried getting help, but my mom said, hey, you don't you don't have a reason to be depressed. I've had so many friends in and out of hospitals because of their mental illness, with unsupportive parents and no one to turn to. I reach out to parents over and over and over again, especially for the kids who are not 15 yet, and people don't call me back. The bill became law, with some caveats like discussing the importance of parental involvement with the student or if the student is suicidal. A lot of districts change their age of consent to 12. Cherry Creek, Aurora, Mesa County, 51. One district stands out for their much older age of consent, Denver Public Schools. Students need parent permission until they're 18. At this time, we're yeah, following current protocol. Parent must provide consent for counseling services provided by DPS school-based mental health providers. So our school psychs, our school social workers, school psych interns. Ellen Kelty oversees those employees in Denver, the largest district in the state. Each district in Colorado can set its own policy. Some districts feel confident in following the new 12 and over law. But Kelty says the district is still reviewing the new legislation to see if it violates FERPA, a federal law giving parents certain protections when it comes to their children's educational record. Our looking into it, looking into FERPA, looking into legal points around it was that we wanted to stay at 18. And we're looking at it now and should know, I hope, for next school year. She says if a student was suicidal, they would be seen without parent permission. DPS also has about 17 schools that house clinics run by Denver Health. Originally, the district told CPR that the age requirement provision was a policy of Denver Health. The health organization said nope. In fact, depending on the service, it follows the new 12 and up policy in its clinics outside schools. Denver Health's Jackie Zelezniak. If there's discussion of changing how and who we care for with or without parental consent based on what statute is in place at the time, I think we're very open to those conversations. Meantime, students in DPS will have to get their parents on board to access mental health services. The fact that it's 18 is really distressing. Representative Michelson Janae. Especially amongst a mental health crisis. But the law is causing confusion in some school districts. Some Adams County districts thought the health provider that works in their schools had an age of consent of 15. The CEO for that provider, Community Reaches, Rick Doucette, clarifies that it's not. It was 15 before and now it's 12. And that's the law for us. Still others are confused about the law's use of the term psychotherapy versus the mental health support most schools provide. Representative Michelson Janae hopes to clarify the law this session so districts cannot opt out of getting mental health services to anxious or depressed teens. Our children are dying. 
This is not theoretical. Districts are watching closely because any change could make the situation even more complicated. I'm Jenny Brendine, CPR News. You can find this and other stories focused on teens under stress, the causes, and the solutions at CPR.org. New year, new headquarters for the Bureau of Land Management. It's now here in Colorado. The BLM has officially called Grand Junction home since January 2nd. The acting head, William Perry Pendley, just spent several weeks in Colorado helping set up the new office. CPR's Western Slope reporter Stina Sieg spoke with Pendley before he flew back to Washington. Hi, Stina. Hi, Avery. You met Pendley inside the brand new BLM headquarters near downtown Grand Junction. Is it totally up and running? Well, it truly is up and running. You know, Penley says it's business as usual, just, you know, more phone and video conferences. And when you go inside the headquarters, you know, it feels really in transition. You know, we're talking a lot of empty cubicles. And while there will be 40 people by spring, there's just a handful of folks staffing it now. And most of them are actually on rotation from nearby BLM offices. What's Penley's impression of Grand Junction so far? Oh, he's very complimentary. Uh, Just about like everyone in favor of this movie, he was talking about the vast public lands that surround the city. He's talking about the short commutes, not typical descriptions of Washington, D.C. And when I asked him if he felt welcome in in Grand Junction, he had this really adamant answer. Oh, you can't find a place that's been more welcoming. They, uh, they, you know, practically throw roses in our path as we got off the plane and train and came came in. Uh, It's been terrific. Uh, They've been very welcoming and very exciting. Uh, We're delighted to be here. Okay, that red carpet treatment, that cannot be the full picture. There were protests outside the new BLM headquarters the day it opened, right? Oh, yeah. And there were about two dozen people, you know, waving homemade signs outside the headquarters that first morning. And to the person, they each said, you know, I love the BLM, but I'm just worried that this large-scale restructuring is going to weaken the agency, and that could weaken protection for public lands. But it's not just people in Grand Junction who have those concerns. Did Penley have anything to say about the ongoing opposition to the move? Well, yeah. So this move is part of this large-scale restructuring at the BLM. Almost all of the of the D.C.-based staff are being moved across the West. That includes Grand Junction. Uh, and many congressional Democrats and actually former BLM staff as well, they're saying that this is a way to move top decision makers out of the nation's capital so BLM you know, appointees from Trump can make decisions without their input and without their intervention. Shortly before the BLM moved, two former BLM directors penned this essay in Politico, and they said this is a way to destroy the agency from the inside. And I asked Penley about that. He addressed it, and he said they have it all wrong. They really have bought into a conspiracy theory that I think is beneath them, that this is a way we're trying to destroy the agency. For goodness sakes, if we're trying to destroy the agency, we there's certainly better ways to do it than uh, spend all this time, money, and effort to come out here and staff up. You know, and there is evidence that the BLM is trying to beef up its staff. In the fall, it began to advertise for uh, positions in Grand Junction, 19 of them. Now, critics are also concerned that the Trump administration could open more land to energy production. What did Pendley say have to say about that? So he has this way of leaning into certain criticisms instead of denying them. He kind of owns it. Uh, When I brought up the idea that this is revving up energy production, he basically said, yeah, that's what we're doing, and it's a good thing. Well, I think it was a mistake of the Obama administration not to develop oil and gas on uh, Western lands. 
And what the federal government says, we're not going to develop the resources that are here, whether they be recreation or oil and gas or mining or whatever they are. When the federal government says that, then they're saying to the county, you're not going to be able to pay for your schools, for law enforcement, for hospitals. You're not going to be ha- able to have the kind of thriving economy where, where families, kids can come back and raise their kids with grandma and grandpa. Oil and gas, they're obviously non-renewable resources. What did you say when you asked him if he had concerns about putting so much emphasis on something that will inevitably run out or lose value? So he stressed that the Trump administration has what he calls an all-above energy program. That means wind and solar, not just oil and gas. And he said they're most worried about taking care of America's immediate energy needs. We're not planning for 2050. We're, we're planning for 2021, 20, and so forth. We're, we're doing what we can do. I remember years ago, Paul Harvey talked about uh, the, the pessimist who said, when whale oil is gone, the world will be plunged into darkness. Uh, and uh, we've had a lot of doomsayers in my lifetime, and Americans uh, are really clever and creative and uh, have a great know-how, and so they can come up with solutions for the problems that we face. You know, but I think it's fair to say that many environmental activists do not share this optimism at all, and they fundamentally do not trust the Trump administration. Now, Stina, you've also talked to quite a few critics of the BLM's move for your reporting. Some people are worried that a future administration could just move the headquarters back to Washington, and that would be a waste of all the time and money the BLM spent moving to Grand Junction. What did Penley have to say about that? You know, it's kind of like the same thing he said about the non-renewable resources. He's focused on his job right now. And he thinks that his job right now is basically making the agency work. And he is supposed to be uh, heading the agency until at least April. Well, we just deal with what we can deal with. And I'm not going to speculate about what, what the future holds. Uh, I just know what lies in front of us. And what lies in front of us is to make this agency, the Bureau of Land Management, more effective. And the key to making it more effective, to better serve the American people, to delegate more responsibility in the field, to put our people closest to the resources we're managing, is to bring everybody out here. And Penley says that two-thirds of the employees the agency has asked to move have agreed to move. It's about 175 people. But in the meantime, you know, some congressional Democrats, they're still fighting this whole relocation uh, plan. And they're they're going to continue to ask the Department of Interior for documentation that this will actually help the agency. They have not received it yet. Stina, thank you so much for sharing your reporting. Thank you. Stina Sieg is CPR's Western Slope reporter. She recently spoke with William Penley, acting head of the Bureau of Land Management, when he was in Grand Junction. That's the BLM's new headquarters. When we come back, forget what you know about planets. Now picture something light and fluffy, maybe even puffy. New discoveries after the break. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You know that mornings are busy and a lot can happen overnight. It's Mike Lamp, Morning Edition host on CPR News. And one option to plug in while you're busy getting ready for the day, ask your smart speaker to play CPR News. It's that simple. Colorado Public Radio is at your command anytime, hands-free, with your smart speaker. Just say, play CPR News.
the more we learn about our galaxy, the weirder it gets. New planets discovered by the University of Colorado scientists are as light and fluffy as cotton candy. Doug Duncan is here to explain. He's an astronomer at CU Boulder and joins us regularly to talk about space science. Hi, Doug. Hi, always a pleasure. In our solar system, we have rocky planets and gas planets. I thought that that was all there was. Now we find another solar system 2,000 light years away has these puffy planets. What are they like? Well, they're very low density. They would float. They're kind of like styrofoam overall. And and they're puffy. Um, They're puffy because they're hotter than most planets in our solar system. And when gases are hot, they expand. And so you get a more puffy planet. We think these particular planets are puffy because they still have some heat from when they formed. Okay, Okay, tell me a little bit about how they formed. So planets form out of gas and dust in a big nebula when the sun and planets were forming and gravity pulls them together and they heat up and then they continue shrinking. It's remarkable, but even Jupiter in our solar system, he's shrinking about an inch a year. So these puffy planets are earlier in their life histories and they're still very puffy. And were they formed where they sit in the universe right now? Almost certainly not, okay? Because um, you can't make a planet too close to a star or to the sun. It's too hot and the gases will go away and you, and you won't get a planet. So probably what happened with these puffy planets is they formed further out, you know, out towards where uh, Jupiter formed in our solar system or maybe not quite so far out. And um, then they got pulled or pushed to uh, closer to their star. And when they're closer to the star, there are some puffy planets that orbit in just a few months or a few weeks as opposed to years like Jupiter. So they're closer to their stars. And because of that, they're also getting heat from the star. And that helps keep the atmosphere hot and, and that puffed keeps up. them puffy. And that helps keep them puffy, yes. Now, this is kind of a new idea to me that a planet doesn't stay where it was formed. What could pull or push or knock a planet out of its orbit? Another big planet. <laughs> okay. So you, you, uh, if you imagine a solar system with two Jupiters, let's say, if they get anywhere near each other, they're going to phenomenally disturb the orbits of the planets. And one might get... Uh, pulled or flung closer into its star, and one might get flung all the way out of the solar system and and go away, never come back. So it's not necessarily like marbles, they're not colliding, but their gravity is interacting. Exactly. Um, I want to give credit here. This this research was done by Jessica Libby Roberts and Zachary Berta Thompson at CU. Their study shows that puffy planets are spewing billions of tons of material into space every second. Does that mean that they'll shrink like Jupiter? Uh, They will. You know, the puffy planets, when they're young, they shrink quite a lot. And, you know, not to give the wrong idea, Jupiter's not going away. Jupiter is (laughs) only very, very slowly shrinking now. Uh, These puffy planets more so, though, and they're losing a lot of their gas, and they're going to end up lower mass, maybe something more like a Neptune, and less like a Jupiter. The CU researchers, they spotted these planets using the Hubble telescope, but I understand other puffy planets have been found using a very small telescope. Tell us about that. Well, that's a fascinating story. It's something called the KELT, K-E-L-T, 
And Kelt stands for, the K stands for kilodegree or thousands of degrees. So this is a telescope that looks all over the sky, covers thousands of degrees. But the ELT stands for extremely little telescope. And this telescope is very literal name. Smaller than you could guess. Okay. I doubt if anybody out in our radio audience is thinking as small as this telescope is. It's about a two inch aperture, three inch long lens. It's like a lens on your home SLR camera, if you have a camera like that. But it's looking for planets around other stars. Okay, if this extremely little telescope can discover exoplanets, planets outside of our solar system, could an amateur with a Holmes telescope? Um, The fun answer is yes. But let me give a little more detail about that, okay? What's really good about the extremely little telescope is that it has a very, very good camera on it and a very good mount. So when it's taking pictures of the stars, it's very steady, and each star is very sharp and carefully measured. Because you see, the problem is when a planet goes in front of its star, the light dims, and that's how we, we find these extrasolar planets, but it doesn't dim a lot. Jupiter is a pretty big planet, but if you were out there uh, among the stars and trying to discover planets around the sun, when Jupiter moves in front of the sun, it only dims 1%. Okay, so that's not very much. So you need a very stable camera. It doesn't necessarily have to be a big telescope. It kind of depends on how far away the star is you want to study. If it's very far away and it's faint, you might need a big telescope. You might need Hubble. But if it's a bright star, um, you can use an extremely little telescope. And I imagine that instability if we're talking home telescopes, it is greatly magnified when we're talking about looking at things so far away in other solar systems. Um, it is, but there actually is an association called the American Association of Variable Star Observers. And they're all amateurs, and they have modest telescopes in their backyards. They have good cameras on them, and they study stars that vary. And they might vary because the star itself is changing, or they might vary because a planet is passing in front of it. Oh, interesting. So does their amateur research, can that help steer scientists with maybe a more professional telescope? Oh, absolutely. And as a matter of fact, there is a movement afoot, which is called citizen science. And scientists discovered actually some years ago that they have so much data nowadays that they, uh, astronomers, for instance, have pictures of thousands, tens of thousands of galaxies. And there's not tens of thousands of astronomers, okay? And so not every picture was getting looked at. And some very clever astronomers decided, why don't we just put this on the internet and let amateur astronomers or even any citizen uh, classify the galaxies, So you can do this, okay? You should um, Google something called Galaxy Zoo. That was the original program. And what they do is they train you. And it doesn't take too long. You know, you might train for half an hour. And they give you pictures, say, of uh, 10 different kinds of galaxies, spiral galaxies, elliptical galaxies, and so on. And once you're trained, then they give you 100 galaxies, which are yours, to classify. So you're helping the professionals out. So I could go home and become a galaxy classifier. That is fascinating. Yeah, and it's not just galaxies. Citizen science was so successful that now there are people, you know, uh, studying pictures of animals and butterflies. I've even heard the latest project is medieval writing. 
the human eye is surprisingly good at detecting things. You know, we hear a lot about artificial intelligence nowadays, and we kind of worry about becoming obsolete because a computer can do what we can do. But our eyes are so good at recognizing patterns that when it comes to classifying butterflies or seeing a little dip in the tracing of light from a star, we're still better than the computers at picking out what's interesting. That's something that we're really good at. Now, these puppy planets that we were talking about, they were discovered by established scientists. But last week, NASA announced that an exoplanet had been discovered by a high school intern. What do you make of that? I think it's fantastic. I actually teach at a special uh, high school program for for uh, high school, excuse me, a special summer program for high school students. And students can do a lot. Like we said, people at home can do a lot. This person was lucky because on only their third day working, um, they discovered an extrasolar planet. But I am a great advocate of internships. I always tell my students, jobs are not like school. So if you can intern at uh, Colorado Public Radio or in an astronomy uh, observatory, you're going to learn a lot more about the career. And we didn't even confirm that there were planets outside our solar system until about 25 years ago. Now, we're seeing examples of how diverse the universe really is. How do you see these discoveries affecting space science? You know, I think we live in a marvelous age of astronomical discovery. Um, when I was young and, and, and studying astronomy, it was such a question. Are there other planets out there besides the ones in our solar system? And we've learned so much more about other solar systems and ours. Remember, it's not just this other solar system where the planets get pushed around. My students are very concerned with whether there's nine planets or eight. You know, is Pluto a planet? Here in our solar system. Right. But I tell them there could have been 15. That's what we think. Um, we, we could have lost a couple of Neptunes, a Saturn or two, got thrown all the way out of the solar system. It was chaotic in early solar systems. Uh, and all the craters on the moon, they bear witness to this time because the number of impacts tell us how much stuff was flinging around and crashing. And so a lot of solar systems have the planets move around, which I think is very fascinating. If you find a planet, do you get to name it? Here's the sad news. Well, actually, with all these new planets, astronomers are in kind of a quandary what to do about naming them, okay? If you find a comet, it's automatically named after you. Um, if you find an asteroid, you definitely get to name it, although there are some rules. With the extrasolar planets, the professional astronomers are really struggling over the rules and so I think that's a bit of an undecided story at present. But, you know, the fun is in finding one, <laughs> whether you get to name it or not. Doug, thank you for joining us today. Always a pleasure. Doug Duncan is an astronomer at CU Boulder. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Colorado Springs is growing. The city makes up two-thirds of the population of El Paso County, and the state demographer projects that by 2050, El Paso County will be home to more people than the city and county of Denver. Sure, that's decades from now, but there are those in the Springs who think that it's time to start planning for growth, particularly to avoid traffic congestion. Vince Bezdek, editor of the Colorado Springs Gazette, recently wrote a column calling on the city to develop a strategic growth plan. Welcome, Vince. Thanks. Thanks for having me. In your editorial, you asked how the Springs can avoid becoming Denver. 
What do you have against the Mile High City? Hey, I grew up here, so I have nothing, but it's a lot different from when I grew up. There's gridlock, a lot more gridlock than when I grew up. I could just drive anywhere at will, pretty much. So we'll get back to that traffic in a moment. But we should note, when the state demographer says that El Paso County will be more populous than Denver, they're just talking about the city and county of Denver, not the entire metro area. Remind us where the population of El Paso County sits right now. So it sits at 700,000, and they expect it in by 2050 to be uh, closer to a million, over 900,000. And it's been growing fast lately, too. And like we said, Colorado Springs makes up two-thirds of El Paso County's population. And it really is, it's one of the biggest cities by landmass in the, in the United States, because it's just continued to grow and grow and sprawl. And since Denver's kind of landlocked by its suburbs, they expect Colorado Springs to surpass Denver. Um, so that's what they're talking about, not the metro area. Denver's metro area is 3 million plus, and they still, that'll still be the biggest metro area in the state. So let's talk about that sprawl a little bit, because one of your big beefs with growth is traffic. But that's something that Colorado Springs has avoided so far, despite the population growth it's had recently. Yeah, and I just talked to our mayor about that, and his, his point was sprawl is good. He thinks sprawl is good because there's a lot of different parts of the springs that are on the periphery, like military bases, the Broadmoor, big businesses that are kind of outside the the main core of the city. And so that keeps traffic spread out, whereas Denver kind of grew up, right? Springs grew out, Denver grew up, but the Springs doesn't have that big commute into downtown and out of downtown like Denver does. In fact, Colorado Springs downtown feels like a town of 70,000 still. It kind of feels small town. Wow, but I think that Colorado Springs, it actually covers twice as much land as Denver. That's exactly right. And a big difference between Denver and Colorado Springs is that Denver can't sprawl, right? Right. So the Poundstone Amendment passed in the 70s uh, required any uh, annexation that Denver wanted to do to be approved by the land that was being annexed. So it didn't happen. Uh, so Aurora, Thornton, Westminster, they all sort of keep Denver locked in. And any sort of planning that Denver does has to be done in uh, collaboration with those communities. And as the Springs expands, is there a direction that it's growing? It's growing north toward Denver. In fact, there's a lot of people moving to northern Colorado Springs that commute to Denver now. And one of the reasons is houses are about $100,000 cheaper in Colorado Springs than Denver on average. But we have the fastest growing uh, millennial population in the country uh, because of that. It's just cheaper. That's fascinating. Um, The Springs downtown is growing too, I believe. It's on the New York Times top places to travel in 2020. What's the draw? Could you believe that? We were like 13th in the world, you know, with places like Paris and Sawatho. Uh, I think it's getting a lot of buzz because it's a very livable city. But one thing that's kind of drawn attention is uh, next year, the Olympic uh, Museum is going to open and it's gotten a lot of kind of worldwide attention. And the Springs, we're kind of at the place where Denver was when Lodo really blew up and the, the Coors Field was built and that whole part of town. We're just about to have our own Lodo and Larimer Square and those things are coming to Colorado Springs. So it's kind of a dynamic time for the city right now. Now, I can't get away without talking about urban sprawl, that it definitely has some drawbacks, both for the environment and infrastructure. What does that look like in Colorado Springs? Well, there's a lot of areas that are not even being developed. And it's it's really the kind of the, the first ring of suburbs are getting 
old and decrepit and they need some infill. Um, so Colorado Springs does ignore some of those places and they build cookie cutter developments out on the north ends and on the peripheries and kind of let some of that older city decay. Uh, and that's, that's kind of a problem. And there's, there's areas, there's one area, the southeast part of Colorado Springs that had the fastest growing poverty rate in the country a few years ago. So there are definitely drawbacks. And how are the roads on the periphery holding up? Well, we passed, we had to pass a tax uh, five years ago to repair our roads because they were so bad. And we just passed a renewal of that tax and they were in bad shape. And five years ago, the Springs was in bad shape because they were turning off streetlights and closing parks because of budget crunch. But now the economy's perking along and they've solved a lot of those problems. Now, in your editorial, you call for a strategic citywide plan to deal with growth. Are there any intermediate steps that the city is already taking? They do have a five-year plan, and they're already looking at a lot of infrastructure issues. But it's a city that's really driven by developers in a lot of ways, more so than Denver. And so the developers will build, and then the city will respond. And it's very reactionary. So I think we got to really start thinking proactively if we're going to avoid some of the congestion Denver faces because Denver grew so fast that I think it's still catching up. Some people say it's 10 to 20 years behind in infrastructure. And I wonder if there are any specifics that you would particularly like to see in that kind of a city plan. Well, there's hardly any public transportation in Colorado Springs at all. It's so spread out. There's a bus system that doesn't work very well. And there's not a lot of ways to get around if you're not in a car. And that's another drawback to urban sprawl, right? Exactly. It's hard to get a bus out to a really far away place geographically. Because we had a town hall on bike lanes in Colorado Springs, and 500 people showed up, and most of them were against the bike lanes. So we still got a long ways to go in terms of other kinds of commuting options and public transportation options. Vince, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. This is fun. Vince Bizdeck is the editor of the Colorado Springs Gazette. In the next 30 years, the state demographer projects El Paso County will become home to more people than the city and county of Denver. Affordable housing in some of Colorado's ski towns is an issue as old as the resorts themselves. But a new idea has emerged in the Vale Valley. CPR's Nathaniel Miner reports one town there is discussing a new tax targeted at wealthy part-time residents. Jake Wolf lives in a homey, if slightly dated, condo in Avon, Colorado. Music posters cover the walls. It's been his big passion since moving here decades ago. Well, I was in a rock and roll band called Shakedown Street. It's a Grateful Dead cover band. He still plays every now and then. But as a town councilor, he spends more time these days working on issues like affordable housing. We drive around town in his aging Chevy Suburban. He shows me an old fire station. Wolf says the town leased it to a local restaurant. We own the property, and they have turned it out into uh, uh, employee housing. Avon is home to the swanky Beaver Creek Ski Resort, and it has the same problem as many other ski towns in Colorado. Housing is too expensive for people who live and work there. Demand for modest homes is far higher than what's available, and that pushes prices way up. Rent for one of the two-bedroom apartments on the valley floor can run over $2,000 a month. But as we drive north on the winding roads that rise above the valley, the houses change. Yeah, this is a whole other world up here, even though it's like five seconds out of town. The houses are bigger, much bigger. We pass one stylish stone and wood home. I mean, I'm no judge of square footage, but uh, I don't know. That's probably 15,000 square feet house right there. 
something else stands out about it. There doesn't seem to be anyone there. I would say that house probably sits empty 10 months a year. It's not just this home. The city of Avon estimates nearly half of its houses are lived in only part-time. Wolf says often the owners live out of state and only visit a few times a year. And that paradox, between a shortage of affordable homes and a glut of high-end empty houses, that stuck with Wolf. And then, last fall, he went to a conference and heard about a new tax in Vancouver. Officials from the Canadian city said a new 1% tax on vacant homes was working. It was incentivizing second homeowners to rent out their houses. That, to me, was an eye-opener. I was like, whoa, well, if they can do it up there... There's got to be some merit to it. Um, Vancouver's still functioning city, from what I understand. So it didn't go up in flames. Uh, maybe we can learn from them. So Wolf brought the idea back to Avon. If second homeowners didn't want to rent out their homes, he thought, the city could still use the new revenue for more affordable housing. The local newspaper picked it up, and that's where Mark Kogan heard about it. Kogan is a retired Goldman Sachs partner and lives part-time in one of those very large homes in Avon. He thought it was a half-baked idea. That this was a ready-fire-aim approach, that uh, no thought had been put into what is a vacant property, what does a vacant property tax do? Kogan says a vacancy tax would send an unwelcoming message. Because it would say, you're second-class citizens. Because you've decided that you don't want to live here full-time, we're going to take advantage of you. Kogan says wealthy residents like himself would just choose to live elsewhere if a vacancy tax were imposed. He says there are better solutions to the housing problem, like higher wages. And he would never consider renting out his own home. He says it's his sanctuary. And I built it knowing that I never had to rent it to somebody because um, I could afford to do that. I'm lucky in that respect. Kogan says he does feel an obligation to give to local charities, but he doesn't feel like he's responsible for the housing crisis in any way. But research suggests that wealthy residents do play a role in overall affordability. Megan Lawson is an economist with Headwaters Economics. She says many Western resort towns that have affordability issues tend to have many residents who make money from investments and not from the local economy. Avon, she says, is an example of that. And so we see a real mismatch when people are earning this income from outside of the community. And so they're able to afford more expensive homes, and so that will distort the local uh, housing market. Lawson says a fee or tax on empty homes would target one of the root causes of the affordable housing problem. In Avon, though, town councilor Jake Wolf says he's gotten a lot of criticism for bringing up this idea. So for now, he's hoping to just continue the conversation. Town leaders plan to study it later this year. I'm Nathaniel Miner, CPR News. Finally today, a chance to sit back, loosen your collar, and slow down. This is Joel Anson, a Denver singer-songwriter who, for a time, had decided to put his music career on hold in order to slow down and focus on family life. He told Marquee Magazine that it was after an evening of reading old fan mail that he decided to return to his creative calling. 
as with his 2015 debut album, Ansett crowdfunded A Place I Knew Before, released last year. The project brought in $33,000 from fans hungry for new music. Right now I can't remember what I was hoping for. Then came a moving picture, pulling the wall again. I'll show you what you're missing. It's just around the bend. Oh, don't look back, look back. Everybody else in the Cadillac. I'm too young to die. Denver artist Joel Ansett with the song Cadillac. He performs February 2nd at Red Rocks as a part of their intimate indoor concert series, which includes a backstage tour of the venue. That's it for Colorado Matters today. Our executive producer is Carl Bielek, producers Anthony Cotton, Andrea Dukakis, Michelle P. Fulcher, and Alexandra McMahon. Our fellow is Claire Cleveland. Our audio engineers are Michael Hughes, Matt Hers, Shane Rumsey, Patrice Mondragon, and Natasha Watts. Thanks so much for joining us. My co-host is Ryan Warner, and I'm Avery Lill. You're listening to CPR News.